And uh, the title of my sermon today is The Scoffer and the Proud. Now, the book of Proverbs, it's a book that's given to us to help us navigate the world as it actually is, the world that God created. But it's not the world that God created back in Genesis 1 when things were perfect. The book of Proverbs is written to help us navigate the world as it is right now, which is a world that is fallen. But not only that, it is written to people as well that are fallen. So there's an extra layer of complexity to it, both a fallen world and fallen people. And that's what this book is written to. It's uh, not a book of guidelines to perfect people on how to live in a perfect world. And of all the warnings in the book of Proverbs, of all the vices and of all the depravities and all the corruptions, there is one sin that stands above the rest of them. It's one that God hates with a passion. You may have guessed it from our Bible readings, but it is the sin of pride. Pride is one of the most insidious and cancerous of sins because it attacks us where we are strong. See, every other sin, well, not every other, but most sins, attack you when you're weak. They attack you when you've given over to temptation. They attack you when you don't want to do it, but your flesh is enticing you, so you decide to do it. Whereas pride becomes more of a temptation the more you grow and the better you are and the more skill sets you get and the more maturity you have. See, pride attacks you where you're strong. It attacks you where you're noble. And it attacks you where you're good. G.K. Chesterton said, if he had just one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon on the sin of pride. Love going to his church, eh? Every week you come in. Another sermon on pride, oh. <laughs> Probably need it though, hey? <laughs> So, I've got three points that I want to lead you guys through. My first point is this, the deadliness of pride. My second point is this, the offensiveness of pride. And then my third point, uh, the virtue of humility. So, I've got a small collection of Proverbs I want to read on the deadliness of pride. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, there then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 29.23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now, before we get too far into Proverbs, we kind of need to define our terms. We need to actually have a common understanding of what's going on when the Bible uses the word pride. What does it mean? What should we be looking out for? Now, pride is a sense of superiority. It's a a sense of self-importance, especially over and against the world. Pride cannot exist in a vacuum. Pride needs other people around you because you cannot feel proud unless you have something to feel proud about. And it's over and against other people. Uh, You can think of it as kind of like a God complex. You're dethroning God and you're rethroning yourself in these places. Uh, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. The highest of all beings that God created became the lowest of scum and villainy through this sin. And it's through pride that we find little devils running around. Paul warns not to put a young man in ministry too early or he may be conceited and fall into the sin of the devil. Pride attacks you where you're strong. It's a little thought that says, I am not like other people. It's that little thought that says, I am better 
than other people. And it's far more common than we'd like to admit. Now, pride is destructive by nature. It's a sin that's enticing and rewarding at first, but Proverbs notes that it can cause a man, man's whole life to come crashing down with a thundering crash that will wake the baby. We are all enslaved to this sin to some degree, and it is incredibly rare for someone to be able to notice it in themselves. But on the flip side, we are ultra-sensitive in noticing it in other people. We are very good at noticing arrogance. We're very good at noticing pride. We're very good at noticing someone with a haughty spirit. Uh, and, but when it comes to us, you know, if you, list a, you, know, you give a list of all your sins, you confess them before people, it's very rare that you'll find pride on there outside of the church. And it's kind of rare to still find it in the church as well. Now, C.S. Lewis says this, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride. Proverbs 16, 18, I read before, says, A haughty spirit goes before a fall. Now that word haughty, you may not have known it before, but it means scornfully and condescendingly proud pretty intense, that word haughty. Every time you see that word haughty, you want to think like pride times 10. It's like in your face, kind of pride and arrogance. It's a, it's a huge sense of self-importance. And we all crave honor. We all feel the need to be above others and to receive glory for our skills and our talents and our giftings, even if they're small in comparison to others. And we can't stand it when other people get the spotlight, when someone gets chosen over us or someone else excels in an area that we are pretty good at. And look, they're better than us. We, that was us. We were that guy. We had that bit of skill. And then this other guy came in and he's better than me. And I hate him. What did he do to you, man? Oh, nothing. He's just, you know, he's better than me at this thing. It's very hard to see pride in yourself, but it is easy to see it if you look at the fruit. The fruit is the good sign to look for, to know what kind of tree you are. So here's some questions to make you feel uncomfortable. How do you react when someone brushes you off? When someone ignores you? How do you react when people don't notice you when you think you're doing something impressive? How do you react when someone patronizes you? Yeah, that one got me. <laughs> See, pride causes us to clamor for what we think we deserve. We try to outdo one another and we try to demand praise. And if we don't get it, we get angry. We sulk, we withdraw, we attack. Proverbs tells us that pride goes before a fall. So what kind of fall are we talking about? What does pride do to us? Why does it destroy us? Why is it the precursor to a significant destruction within your life? Well, I've got four ways that I think it's gonna destroy your life. Firstly, pride will tarnish your reputation. See, when we sulk, when we show off or berate or flare up in a temper, we inevitably will take a huge hit to our reputation. The reason pride is so deadly is because when we are sulking and acting like impetulant children, we at the same time feel incredibly justified, don't we? We feel like we ought to do this. We deserve to do this. Uh, when everyone else who looks at us sees us as a sook or just someone who has a temper. And in all our attempts to get people to respect us or notice our superiority or importance, we actually do the opposite of it. Yeah, we might get someone to give us that sympathy attention, but notice that it's sympathy attention. 
They're doing it because they feel like this guy, oh, he needs a bit of sympathy right now. Or some out of fear will tell us what we want to hear or apologize to us profusely for daring to ignore us. But what we actually accomplish is screaming out to the world that we are insecure, tarnishes your reputation. That's kind of the least destructive thing that pride does to you. Secondly, it causes you to take foolish risks. You've seen the whole hold my beer kind of attitude, right? I could do that thing that guy did. You know, a proud man might greatly overestimate his combat ability, go into a fight and then get smoked by someone, right? They definitely overestimated in their prideful arrogance what they can do. It can cause us to accept a job or promotion that's well beyond our pay grade. And then we get humiliated when everyone sees that we're underqualified. Jesus talks about those who take the seat of honor at feasts. And it's humiliating when someone comes along to you and says, oh, that's seat from someone else. You need to go down to the low position. In front of everyone, you get humiliated. It's pride that causes you to share your opinions on something you don't really know anything about. And then you get humiliated when someone does know what they are talking about. And sometimes when these humiliating events happen to people, they learn humility. They go, yeah, I probably should have just kept my mouth shut. I probably shouldn't have said anything. But not usually. When someone faces humiliation, the problem isn't them. The problem is whatever humiliated them. The problem was the job that they had to do or the task they had to perform or the jerk who corrected them or that know-it-all who reckons he knows everything. Thirdly, pride will cause us to get into competition with those we love. Pride, at its very nature, is competitive. As I said, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. You need people around you. Pride only gets pleasure of having more of something or being better than someone else. Now, we might say we are proud of being high status or proud of being smart or handsome or beautiful or wealthy, wealthy, but I don't think that's real. I'll tell you why. You're proud of being higher status. You're proud of being smarter, more handsome, more beautiful or more wealthy than the next man or woman. Because if everyone else had the same as what you did, oh, you've got nothing to be proudful about now, don't you? And pride will take an intimate relationship like a marriage and it'll turn it into a competition. Each spouse is scoring points against each other and always trying to posture themselves as the better spouse. I am more loving, I'm more caring, I do this better, I do this more, I prioritize the relationship more. And the whole time you're saying these things to the spouse, you're not healing your relationship, you're actually bringing destruction into your relationship. Our pride causes church communities and family members to compete on who has the better job, who has the better life, the better kids, the better cars, all these comparisons. And these comparisons poison your relationships because now you have to perform. You go to the family gathering and you know scrutiny on everything you do. It's not very pleasant, is it? Even worse when it's your family and you're walking on eggshells. Pride causes a man to take your girl from you, not simply because he wants her, but to prove to himself that he is a better man than you. The prideful man, when he is rich and has all the money you could ever want or need, will still try to get more so he can be richer than the next guy. That's what pride does to us. And all these things we put down to greed or selfishness, they're more likely the result of pride. C.S. Lewis says, for pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And fourthly, And most importantly, if you're going to get anything I say today, get this one. God opposes the proud. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Just a quick note, there is no other way in Hebrew to write 
something more intense than this. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Does that give you the heebie-jeebies? Because that's, that's intense. Not only is pride destructive by nature, but we invite the divine wrath of God upon ourselves when we persist in it. You think about all the arrogant people in the Bible. Do you remember the book of Esther, Haman, right? He comes up and he sees everyone bowing to him because he's this high official and noble and he's feeling quite, quite good about himself and he walks by and there's Mordecai and he's not bowing. What does a prideful man do in that circumstance? He now wants to kill Mordecai. But not only that, he wants to kill all of Mordecai's people. That's how angry he is about what Mordecai did to him. And yet, despite the fact that he managed to get the king to sign a decree that all of God's people would be put to death, he himself was put to death. And he himself ended up having to bow down to Mordecai. God opposes the proud. When Goliath boasts about his battle prowess and mocks the God of Israel, he is humbled by David the shepherd boy. When Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself as the one who single-handedly built Babylon and doesn't give any glory to God, what happens to him? He is now struck with madness, eating grass like an ox. Everyone who comes past the king is kind of humiliated. He's humiliated in front of everyone. Uh, Belshazzar arrogantly drinks from the plundered vessels of gold and silver from the temple and his kingdom is taken away from him that night and given to the Persians. This is still true today. God opposes the proud. James 4.6 God opposes the proud. But listen, he gives grace to the humble. If you want to invite God's animosity towards you, be proud and you'll get it. And it leads me to my second point, the offensiveness of pride. Got another collection of Proverbs for you. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 21, 24. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Now that's one to write down. Proverbs 24, 9. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Proverbs 6, 16 to 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And the first thing on that list, haughty eyes. So I don't know if you saw a trend in those Proverbs, but it doesn't sound like God's a big fan of pride, does it? Now, pride is something that God absolutely hates. He can't stand it. It's offensive to him in a way that other sins simply are not as offensive to him. The proud man or woman enjoys power the most. For them, power is not merely a means to do good, but a means for self-improvement, a means to lord it over others. Nothing makes a person feel more superior than being able to order someone else around. It makes them feel great. They have to do what I tell them to do. It turns every relationship into a rivalry into a hostility. As long as someone out there has more money, more status, more power, more attractiveness, that person is my rival and enemy. Why am I saying this? Well, pride, the offensiveness of pride goes both ways. Because the proud man finds nothing more offensive than God. For God is the ultimate seat of power, of ultimate authority, the ultimate standard by which all men must measure themselves, the one thing that no matter how good a man gets, he is nothing in comparison. God is one of the most 
humbling of beings when you come before him. And because of this, the proud man is offended. And he in turn becomes an offense to God. In the Lord, we come head to head with a being so utterly above us, so infinitely superior to us, so immeasurably wiser and more beautiful that unless you really believe that in your soul, you cannot possibly know God at all. Many arrogantly and pridefully think they can lecture God or talk about how they would rule the universe with greater wisdom and foresight. But here's the thing that I get from that statement with people who think they can lecture God. I get two things from that. Firstly, that person has absolutely no self-awareness or self-knowledge at all. Like it's the most unself-aware thing you could possibly say to think that you could lecture God. And secondly, their complete inability to understand just how awesome God is. It'd be like going to the Grand Canyon and there is this huge chasm in the earth, this thing, a scale of monumental proportions in front of you. You just shrug. Yeah, whatever. Walk away. You know what the Grand Canyon does to people when they see it? Awe. They're amazed. They're stunned with what they just witnessed. And they feel small in its comparison. That's the response that you ought to have when you come before God. Awe, wonder, amazement. But there are those who come before amazing things and shrug their shoulders and walk away and don't care. The book of Proverbs has a name for this man, the scoffer. You may have heard of him. Proverbs tells us he's the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. It's a pretty good working definition, what do you reckon? (laughs) He's the one who belittles, who humiliates, who berates and chastises those they consider beneath them. You'd think this person would have a smidgen of self-awareness when they feel this way towards God, and yet they unashamedly rail against Him. Proverbs tells us that the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. It's easy to see the scoffer and think of someone else, right? Maybe when I said scoffer and I defined it, several people may have popped up in your mind. You went, yeah, that guy's a bit of a scoffer. That lady, oh yeah, she's a mad scoffer. She does it all the time. But what about us? Are we scoffers? I remember when I was a teenager and I was this nihilistic atheist before I became a Christian and I was a scoffer then, for sure. It's easy to see. You saw me saying really ignorant, silly things, feeling like I was superior to everyone else and you go, that guy is arrogant. Yeah, I was arrogant as a teenager. I thought I knew everything. But what about now? Are we scoffers? Would you call yourself a scoffer? You'd probably think, nah, that doesn't fit my bill. I don't berate people. I don't laugh at people. But scoffer is less of a behavioral set and more of a mindset. Do we laugh at those we consider beneath us? You might not laugh in their face, but do you go back with your spouse and have a good chuckle about how silly they were? Do we disdain those that we think are foolish and living in rebellion? Do we look at churches who are theologically haphazard and rejoice in our perceived superiority to them? I mean, pride is so insidious that things that ought to make you mourn make you rejoice. A church, if they are not preaching the gospel and they don't preach the word and they live in disobedience, if that makes you feel good, something is wrong. Things that ought to make us cry out to God for mercy make us boast before Him. When we see someone lost in sin and that makes you think, ah, so glad I'm not like them. The right response is to think, 
What a misery that this person is doing this to their life. I'm going to pray for them. I'm sad for them. Now think of the reaction a parent might have. He's given a toy to a child. It's their birthday. They get the toy. The rest of the siblings don't get the toy. The child walks around to all the siblings and say, ha ha, I'm better than you. Look, mom and dad gave me this toy. I don't know about you, but that's probably the quickest way for him to not have that toy, isn't it? It's going to get taken away from him pretty quick. And we look at it, kids being kids, and we look at that and we think that's rather silly. Isn't that what we do all the time? We walk around and go, ha ha, I have more than you, I'm better than you. Now, it's, when a kid does it, it's out there and it's in your face. When we do it, it's refined and restrained and hard to see. But it, hasn't God given us every good thing? Like right down to your genetic code, to every point in your IQ, every neurological pathway, that form in your brain, you had nothing to do with that. You didn't form it, you didn't make it, you just received it as a gift from God, every cell that makes up your appearance, that flawless skin that you might boast in, God gave that to you. And then we run around and we feel superior. And then we wonder when God takes it away from us, when any good parent would take it away from their kid. So how can I know if I'm a scoffer? Proverbs is actually very uh, unambiguous about whether or not you're a scoffer. Uh, they're very easy to spot. Proverbs tells us that scoffers hate criticism. It's actually the sign of a scoffer. There's no other sign that you can say that guy is a bona fide uh, scoffer apart from their hatred of criticism. And the interesting thing about scoffers is they're very happy to dole it out. That's kind of what they're known for, criticism. You suck here. Happy to laugh at people. Happy to tell them when they're falling short. But guess what? Bring a word of criticism to them. You'll, you'll see their teeth pretty quickly. Proverbs 13.1 says, A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. They won't listen to you. Proverbs 14.6, A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain. And Proverbs 15.12, A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 9.7-8, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Sure sign of a scoffer, they can't hack criticism. They can't handle being corrected or reproved and will in turn try to give it back to you as hard as he got it. Probably a little harder than that. They don't seek out the wise, it says here. They don't want to be more self-aware. They don't want to ask for feedback. And if they do ask for feedback, it's a trick question. Don't answer it because they want positive feedback. They don't want negative feedback. That's the quickest way for them to hate you. Their carefully constructed world of glass can come tumbling down with the faintest word of criticism, so tread carefully. They're going to flare up in an anger. They're going to sulk. They're going to attack your motives for even bringing it up. Why are you saying this to me? They will gaslight you into thinking that actually you're the problem, not me. And they will complain incessantly until you learn, never, ever, ever criticize me again. And you learn not to do it. And you tread on eggshells around them. That's a scoffer. I'm going to be honest with you. This part of Proverbs slammed me. Like there's the theoretical mindset of, yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I got all these things. But when it comes to the scoffer, I was like, man, I'm kind of a scoffer. Like I can't handle criticism sometimes. I get very defensive in my marriage. If I feel threatened, man, sometimes I can dish it out as readily as I receive it. 
Sometimes I can pretend to receive it and then go away and then be super furious at that person for saying it to me. I mean, why do we do this? Why do we feel so superior to others? We can't stand it when someone corrects us. How dare they do that? Do they know who I am? Do they know who they are? They have no right to say anything. Let them get on our level first, and then they might be able to breathe a word of correction towards us. And we feel like we're the wise person. We like instruction. We like people coming up and giving us feedback. We want it. We invite it. Really? We pretend that someone out there we respect, right? If they came and said something to us, we would receive it. Because we respect them, right? We're not going to receive it from you. I mean, look at your life. But this person who comes on, really? Proverbs 15, 12 says this, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. He won't go. Those who would actually render us the most help are the ones we're quickest to avoid. The advice that would greatly improve our situation is not the one we want to hear. We just want people to commiserate or scoff along with us. You know, when someone says, oh, why don't you do this thing and this thing and this thing, and then you can improve your situation. You're like, I didn't want to hear this. I just wanted you to feel sorry for me. I just wanted you to listen to me. I mean, husbands, how do you handle it when your wife respectfully comes and gives you a word of criticism? Wives, how do you handle it when your husband gently corrects your behavior? Do you lash out? Is it the perfect time to reach into your back pocket, pull out your laundry list of concerns of all the things that they did to you, just to prove to them, right, how much better than them you are and how ridiculous this whole situation is that they're bringing this up to you? Do they know who I am? Do they know what I've done? Do they know who they are? Do you punish them by sulking and withdrawing until they apologize? Yeah, that kind of sounds like me. Yeah, that's what I do. Wait till they come crawling on their knees, apologize to me, and then I can be this benevolent dictator and forgive them. Well, the book of Proverbs has a name to describe you. Scoffer. Ooh, that's hard. But you don't have to stay there. There is a remedy to the scoffer. Proverbs 21.11. When a scoffer is punished, the simple become wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. There was another proverb that I left out because I thought it was too spicy, but it talks about when you strike a scoffer. Sometimes a scoffer needs a mean right hook, all right? We'll go on. Anyway, Proverbs 22.10, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Generally in a church or a community or in a family where there's constant quarreling and there's constant abuse, it's usually a scoffer behind it. And sometimes a solution Drive them out. You cannot reform them. They will keep destroying you. They will keep destroying your community. In fact, God will drive these people out ultimately, and He will bring them into punishment, we learn in Proverbs. And He says that they stand a testimony to the simple. When they're driven out, you look at that person, and what's the thing it screams out? Don't be this man, don't be like him. For the unbeliever, the scoffer destroys his life. But for the Christian, if you are a scoffer, trust this, God will discipline you. He will humble you and he will bring you low. As you have a choice, as we're reading these things, if you felt like I've really hit on you right now and you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a scoffer, you have two choices right now. You can say, 
How dare he say that? Does he know my situation? No, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on. I'm not going to receive it. Or you can be, like what Proverbs says here, the wise. The wise man is instructed and he gains knowledge. You can receive it, you can repent, and you can say, God, I, I need to do some business with you right now. The scoffer will only become further entrenched, but the wise will hear the criticism and receive it. If I describe you today, Proverbs is calling you, be the wise man. Receive the criticism, turn from it, and gain knowledge, and it will help you become humble. And that's my third point, the virtue of humility. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 27.2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 16.19, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So humility is the opposite of pride. And if pride is raising yourself up, a sense of self-importance, then humility is bringing oneself low. And to cultivate the virtue of humility, we need to be experts at viewing ourselves rightly. Now, you might think being, uh, having a sense of humility is being this like sniveling, groveling person who's quick to remind you, I'm a nobody, I'm terrible at this, I'm not good at that, oh, I'm always sinful, I'm always struggling, I'm always these things. That is not a humble person. That person is paradoxically still prideful. They're still putting themselves at the center. And they're flashing their spiritual beliefs and trying to get praise from you. It's classic. You see it all the time. You know, uh, you often see it in teenage girls, right? Who complain about how ugly they are. When you know and they know they are not ugly. Why are they saying it to you? So you can tell them how beautiful they are. And you can tell them how they're not ugly and reassure them. It's not real humility. They're not being humble. They just want another thing to stroke their ego. The first thing you have to do if you want to be humble is to get God right. Proverbs 22, 4 says, The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Notice how the humility here and the fear of the Lord are linked terms. It's like the same thing almost, but mashed together. When we behold God with reverential awe, we see Him for who He really is, It's going to be like going before the Grand Canyon. Like I said earlier, it's going to bring us profound sense of humility. Isaiah, for instance, when he sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, he all of a sudden sees himself clearly. And when he looks at himself, what does he say about himself? Isaiah 6.5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As soon as Isaiah, the righteous prophet, remember who he is, saw God clearly, he saw his culture himself and his community clearly. And he said, before you, we are basically nothing. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. See, God doesn't hate pride and find it offensive because he himself is prideful and he can't stand when someone else is trying to be better than him. He hates pride because it's so destructive. It destroys a man or woman made in his image when they possess it, not merely because it harms other image bearers, but it separates us from him and causes us to miss him entirely. He wants us to know him and he wants us to give ourselves to him. He wants to reward and bless us with his very near presence. Proverbs talks about the reward being riches and honor and life. 
And yes, there is a temporal, material benefit to knowing God. But then there is the greatly expanded, wonderful new covenant reward from God, which is the special kind of riches that come from knowing God by which a man would willingly sell everything he has to get. The honor that comes from being approved by him, the one whom we should want honor from at the end of the day. And the eternal life, the real life that only he can offer you and nothing else can. If you really connect with God as he is, you will find yourself being humble and you won't really even have to try. It'll just happen to you. You'll feel the wondrous relief of being able to get rid of all that silly nonsense about your dignity, all that self-esteem stuff, the self-worth stuff. It's made you so restless and unhappy your whole life, you just shed it in the presence of God. When true humility comes to a person, their focus goes from being inward and it flips and it's now up and out. A truly humble man or woman is a unique person. How can you spot them? They might be a little unassuming on the surface. They're probably a cheerful, glad, tender-hearted person. And when you were talking to them, they showed a real interest in you and what you were saying. They seemed to genuinely care about what you were talking about and showed no sign of trying to one-up you in the conversation. If for some reason you found fault in them, it's probably because of envy. Why does this guy enjoy his life so much? What's the secret sauce? What's going on? There's something wrong with this guy. How can they find so much joy when they aren't clamoring for their needs and wants and always serving people? Why do they always find it so easy to talk to others? I'll tell you what, that man, that truly humble man, is not walking around thinking, oh, I need to be humble today. Oh, I need to be humble in this conversation. Oh, I need to be like this. You know what? He's not even thinking about himself at all. And that is the true sign of a humble man and a humble woman. They're just not thinking about themselves. To them, they're not really that important. Other people are. God is more important. Humility is other-centeredness. If pride is self-centeredness, then humility is other-centeredness. It's the opposite. We want the best for others. We don't get sad when good things come to others and we didn't get it. We're willing to even suffer for other people so that they will be blessed or to meet a need. We're willing to put our hands up and say, I will deny myself for this. Humility is that the Apostle Paul describes it. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Their needs are more significant than your needs. Their desires are more significant than your desires. Their story is more significant than your story. If you start to believe these things, you'll start to become a humble person. Not as they are more important than you, and you're this groveling person. No, they're a significant person. And it's more significant that you get yourself involved with them. They'll find themselves blessed. They'll be thankful. There's an old Puritan quote from John Bradford. It says, There but for the grace of God go I. If you've got that laundry list of wrongs that your spouse did in your back pocket, pull that out, throw it out, write that quote on it, and then put it back in. There but for the grace of God go I. Every time you see someone in sin, look at them and say, There, where they are, I could be if not but for the grace of God. There's nothing special about me in my nature, in my makeup. We just have a different story. But I could be there apart from the grace of God. 
Except for the sheer and utter grace of God, we really could have been anyone. There is nothing superior about us to other people, only the sheer undeserved grace of the Lord. And every time we look at someone lost in sin that we're not embroiled in, remind yourself that you could have been there too. And how do you get there? Only the gospel can do it for you. It could be cool if there was another answer. It would be cool if there was like some sneaky way to become humble, but only the gospel can make you humble. A recognition that before God, you are a sinner. Let's make it worse. A vile wretch. <sighs> Knife to the heart, hey? Who deserves nothing but eternal punishment for high treason and rebellion to the God of the universe. Hey, we're Christians. This is what we believe. This is our confession. So how on earth are we walking around feeling prideful? If this is who we believe, we are. But on the flip side, we know that while we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, Christ died for us. He humbled Himself. He came down from heaven. He accepted humiliation and mocking and scorn. The Creator of all things permitted to be crucified by arrogant and prideful men who believed they could kill Him and His mission and keep Him dead. And yet through his death, he's rescued you. Completely undeserved. You can ask yourself, why me? Why me? I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you. Apart from the grace of God. Why me? Because God loved you. Even though you didn't deserve it. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. There was nothing you did. God just loved you. And so whenever you say, why me? Say, I don't know. But God loved me. He initiated. It wasn't in response to anything I did. I didn't do anything. If that message doesn't bring you a profound sense of humility, then you have completely misunderstood it. Brothers and sisters, We have a bit of work to do, don't we? But good work. We need to get rid of that sin of pride that is so easy to fall in. Where we get stronger, we get better, we get more righteous, we get more holy, we we know more of the Bible. And there it is. Ready to pounce. Stay humble. Believe the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel. It isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. And through the belief in the gospel and trust in the gospel, we will obtain honor, we will obtain life, we will obtain riches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing wealth we have in your son, Jesus. That although in this world we may not receive material possessions, in him we know that we are more wealthy than anyone else that we have the greatest treasure. And Father, we know that the honor that comes from you, the well done, good and faithful servant, is the only thing we are striving for. For we know that it is the only thing that is worthwhile. The praise of man will come and vanish, but your praise is eternal. And Lord, we thank you for the death you died in our place to win us eternal life. Our Father, we repent before you for the ways that we were scoffers, for the ways in which in our prideful arrogance we felt above criticism, where in our prideful arrogance we felt above other people. We felt like our church was better than others. We felt like our life was better than others. Our theology was better than others. Lord, we do believe that for the, only by your grace we could be there. 
And so we thank you with amazing amount of gratitude, Lord, for what you have done for us. Keep us humble, Lord. Show us who we are and build us up again in the image of your son, Jesus, the one, the, the wellspring from whom all humility flows. I pray for my friends here that need to do work. I pray, Lord, that they would do that heart work. They would see the ways in their marriage and their families and their community with their friends where prideful arrogance has uh, seeped in and made a wreckage of relationships or made them torn. I pray for families that are walking on eggshells, that whoever is above criticism will repent readily to their family. And I pray, Lord, that we would be humble. We would love you. And we will do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.